or that you just sent back to college, once again, you're thinking about, well, how are they doing? What are they doing? Who are they spending time with, right? As you know, your son or daughter at college will spend a good amount of time with people who don't believe in Jesus. Uh, I want to introduce you this morning as we begin to two people your kids will meet at college, uh, Skylar and Sophia. They'll meet Skylar. I met Skylar my first night at college in my dorm room. Actually, uh, it was 3 a.m. Here I am, Christian kid, always got straight A's, National Merit Scholar, show up first day of school, go to bed at 3 a.m. Skylar flipped on the lights in my dorm room, and uh, there he was, drunk, naked, with two other guys and three other girls, all of whom were drunk and naked. And my first interaction with Skylar was to be kicking him in the chest as hard as I could as he was trying to climb up in my bed at 3 a.m. Um, your son or daughter will meet Skylar as well, if they haven't already. Um, and um, Skylar is everything that you warned them about, every bit as immoral as you imagined, right? But your son or daughter will also meet Sophia. Sophia is not a believer either. Um, but Sophia is different. When they first meet Sophia, when I first met Sophia my freshman year of college, uh, my first reaction as I got to know her was, Sophia is actually a better person than I am. Um, Sophia is the kind of person who uh, was everything that our parents wanted us to be, it seemed like. She's high achieving, she's diligent in her studies, she's going places in life and she actually like really cares about other people like she's like marching at rallies for causes that don't even benefit her right just because she cares about people who are less fortunate than herself she's um never making fun of people with disabilities she's actually spending time befriending people with disabilities she's conscious of where her clothing was made and refuses to wear anything that was made in a sweatshop sophia is the one that um can break the categories that some of us Christian kids have when they go to college, maybe is breaking the categories right now of some of your sons and daughters, because for many of us, when we went off to college, the Christian adults in our lives were warning us and praying for our protection, almost exclusively, protect them from that big bad world out there, right? And then we met Sophia, we said, what is there to, what were they so worried about? Um, she's a better person than I am. So, there's Skylar and there's Sophia. I want us to think this morning about Sophia. As Christians, what do we do with that? With the unbeliever who is very committed to living a moral life. How do we interact with such a person? How do we understand such a person? How do we connect with such a person as believers? In our scripture text this morning, uh, we see Paul show up on an island of Sophia's, you could say. If you turn there to Acts chapter 28, that's where we're going to be in the first half of Acts 28. This is an island full of seemingly really good people in a lot of ways. And to refresh your memory on how Paul got here, where Pastor Craig left us last week in chapter 27, Paul is a prisoner. He's being transported by ship to Rome where he needs to stand trial. And the ship has experienced uh, a shipwreck in the last chapter. 
and it looked like they were all going to die, certainly. But the Lord rescued them, and actually every single person on the ship made it safely to shore. And we're going to see today that they find themselves on this island called Malta. And uh, what we're going to see here is uh, an island full of really good people. And it's going to help us think about how to interact with unbelievers who are committed to being moral, right? When Paul and company show up on Malta, they are exhausted. They don't have any provisions because they've thrown them all overboard on the ship, Um, And that's where we are. That's where we pick up the story at the beginning of chapter 28. Now, before we read, we always want to ask, you know, Luke doesn't include every story from Paul's life in the book of Acts, right? And even the stories he does tell, he doesn't include all the details from the story. So every time we come across one of these stories, we want to think, why does Luke include this particular story with these particular details? What does he want for us in this? And I want to suggest that the role this passage plays in the book of Acts is that it's a bridge-building passage, so to speak. It's, it's a passage that helps us think through how to build bridges to people who don't believe in Jesus, but who in some ways are morally good. There's nothing in this passage, actually, about evangelism. We don't see any hint of Paul sharing the gospel, so we don't know how he did that in this, on this island. We don't see any sign of whether these people place their faith in Jesus or not. We don't know. Um, All Luke wants to tell us here, it seems like, is the ways that the bridges were built between the believers and the unbelievers. So our big idea today, just to preview it before we even get to the text, uh, there's Malta, it's in the Mediterranean right there below Sicily. Our big idea today is going to be this, look for opportunities to build bridges to unbelievers. Look for opportunities to build bridges to unbelievers. Our text is going to show us some ways that we can do that. Um, we are going to jump in. I know this is a prolonged intro, but just one more thought before we begin. Uh, Some of you are here this morning and you don't believe in Jesus. And you may be thinking right now, hey, I'm an unbeliever. Why are you talking as if I'm not here? Right? Um, We know you're here. We're so glad you're here, actually. Um, This morning, it might be a little bit weird to be here and hear us talking to each other as Christians about how to interact with you someone who doesn't believe what we believe about Jesus. Um, But you've probably known enough Christians to know that we actually need the help. (laughs) We need some thought about how to interact with you because just like a medical resident who spent a little too much time around doctors and forgets how to interact with the rest of us, or like um, a computer programmer who spends all their time in the basement with other computer programmers and then when they come into the light of day doesn't know how to communicate with us, sometimes we Christians get that way. We spend so much time with each other, speaking our kind of Christianese type of language that only us understand, that we sometimes forget how to interact. And so we need your help. We need your help to uh, be, uh, we, we, we believe some weird things that you, th- you would think are weird, but we don't need to be weird in how we interact with you. Um, so we need your help. And you might think, you know, I'm not interested in helping you get better at your sales pitch so that you can try to convert me to what you believe. And that might be fair if you feel that this morning. Um, But I just want you to consider before we jump into this text. If you're here this morning and you don't believe in Jesus, consider the possibility, just entertain it for a moment, that what we Christians believe is real. Like that we have found the hope for humanity, the greatest news that there is. Like if that were true, 
wouldn't it be the most loving and best thing for us to do to coach each other up on how to share that with people who don't know it, right? So all that to say, if you don't know Jesus, we're glad you're here. Uh, we will welcome you to listen in this morning on what will sort of be an intramural conversation between Christians about how to build bridges to unbelievers. But if you listen in this morning, you might just hear something that scratches an itch that you didn't even know that you had before you came here today. Our text, as we said, helps us think through opportunities to build bridges to unbelievers. I think there's three bits of guidance in particular that we're going to see in this text. Uh, We'll read the text as we go. The first one is this. Requesting help can build a bridge faster than offering help does. Requesting help can build a bridge faster than offering help does sometimes. Look for that as I read verses 1 and 2 of chapter 28. It says, after we, that's Luke, the author, and Paul, and the rest of the people from the ship, after we were brought safely through, we then learned that the island was called Malta. The native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all, because it had begun to rain and was cold. We often seek to start community with others or build bridges to other people, connect with other people by looking for a way to ask this question. How can I help you? Right? But sometimes community is built more effectively by a more vulnerable first question. And it's this. Can you help me? It's a subtle difference, but sometimes some people in the world resent Christians, actually, because we don't give off that we have any needs. Like, we always are portraying that we have it all together. We're always walking around with this big plastered smile on our face and always saying that we're doing great. And they walk into our churches and see us all put together on Sunday mornings. And they smell a rat. They say that can't be real, right? These people are always up on their lofty perch from their sanitized place, reaching a hand down to us. Aren't they real? Don't they have any needs like we do? Right? And so... Um, maybe it goes differently than that here in verses 1 and 2 because Paul and company are not showing up on the island saying, hey, we have arrived. Let us give you what you need. They can't say that because they're desperate, they're hungry, they're exhausted, they're cold. Actually, all they can muster up the strength to say when they get there is, can you help us? And if we're real, as Christians here this morning, That's where many of us are at in reality, right? We don't have to try to think really hard and pretend like we have needs. We just really do. Like, many of you came here this morning desperate and exhausted. That's kind of where I'm at, honestly, in my life right now. Many of you know it. I feel stretched very thin. Um, Many of you know it because I have been asking to move some of my appointments and meetings with you all to my apartment complex so we can walk my son around in the stroller while we talk. My next step is about to be uh, uh, scheduling grocery store meetings. So we walk around the grocery store and shop together um, so I can squeeze another meeting in here and there. Um, I'm struggling right now in my own life, I'll just tell you personally, because I'm used to being such a productive person. And fatherhood, as great as it's been, has uh, slashed my productivity. And I'm struggling with that, right? Um, So I've tried to just start inviting people into that. And maybe that's what it is for you. 
Maybe that's how the bridge starts to get built. Maybe that's how it starts with that mom down the street that you've been trying to think of how to connect with and you haven't thought of a way yet. What if you just invited her into your mess and started there? What if the starting point wasn't you getting your act together enough to be able to get yourself in a presentable place to offer her help? What if the starting point is you saying, hey, I'm a mess right now. Can you help me? You might be surprised at how quickly a bridge can get built. A connection can be formed that way. I don't know for sure, but I, I think I sense a little bit of that in verse 2 that we read from Luke and company. They seem a little bit surprised at what the native people, literally, you'll see the footnote there, the barbarians showed us unusual kindness. Um, that's, just a, that's not a derogatory term. It's just a word that Greek speakers use for non-Greek speakers, but they showed us unusual kindness. They kindled a fire and welcomed us all because it had begun to rain and was cold. Um, maybe that's what some of your kids are experiencing off at college. Hey, those barbarians you warned me about, they're not so bad. I'm actually connecting with some of them. We can connect if we're real, if we're authentic, if they can see our needs. It's a non-starter if we won't share those needs. So, The takeaway from this first point is maybe just this. Think of an unbeliever that you know and love. What's a need that you have in your life, something you need help with that you can ask for help on? Uh, What's a a weakness in your life that you can make known to them? Maybe that would be what launches that connection, that bridge building that you've been trying to make happen for so long but haven't been able to. Uh, That's our first point. Requesting help builds a bridge faster than offering help does. Now, at this point, this first point, we need to acknowledge you could find this in a secular self-help book, right? If you picked up how to win friends and influence people, you might find that as a point in there. Hey, be vulnerable with people, right? You don't need the Bible to tell you that. Uh, But in verses 3 to 6 that we're about to look at, this passage kind of takes a turn toward the supernatural, Uh, What we're going to see there is that our bridge building is not limited to natural means. Our bridge building is not limited to natural means. Let's look for that. Follow along as I read verses 3 through 6. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice, the goddess justice, has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead, but when they had waited a long time and so saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. If you're Paul... Maybe you had some bridge-building plans as you came to this island to meet these people who didn't know Jesus. Maybe you didn't have any plans, but either way, this was not part of your plan, right? This is a miracle that God does. This is something that you couldn't have done on your own to build a bridge to these people. God sends a viper to latch onto your hand, not let go like they usually do, but latch on in the view of all these people who are convinced that this is a poisonous snake that's going to make you drop down dead. And you just shake the snake off and show no ill effects from it, right? As a result of that miracle that God does, these people start to ask, well, who is this man Paul? And where does his great power come from, right? 
the bridge building process gets expedited. They show a particular interest in him that they wouldn't have otherwise. And I don't know about you, but for me, that causes me to take heart. Because I'm reminded when I read that that God is doing this sort of thing on some magnitude all the time. Right? Like we're just faithfully walking along, trying to build a bridge to someone brick by brick. But then sometimes God just says, hey, we're not doing this brick by brick thing anymore. I'm going to build a whole slab of the bridge right now all at once, supernaturally. Have you ever had an experience like that? Uh, I've had many more that I could tell you about. Uh, I'll tell you about two that came to mind this week. One was just two weeks ago. I was in Colorado uh, with a bunch of high school students uh, at a Young Life camp with my wife. Uh, I had a cabin of 10 guys that I've been pouring into, almost all of whom would have said they didn't know anything about a personal relationship with Jesus before coming that week, never had really clearly heard the gospel. Um, so we're spending this week together. Part of the week is we're repelling. That's one of the things they're looking forward to, we're repelling off the side of a cliff, right? So the first three guys from our group go, repel down the cliff, great. Then this huge wind comes up on the side of the mountain. It lasts for 20 minutes. It's a sustained wind of 38 miles an hour with 45 mile an hour gusts. And it just won't stop. It won't let up. The people who are running it say they've never seen a wind like this even close before. They can't send another group until the winds die down below 25. And so we're just waiting and waiting and everything's blown away. And we're trying to figure out if we're going to be able to do this. And eventually they come over the uh, walkie-talkies and say, hey, we're going to we're gonna have to cut it. We're going to have to send these guys home. They're not going to be able to repel. So it wasn't a big deal. I mean, you know, what's really the eternal significance if we don't get to repel? But I knew these guys were excited about it. And I knew that the night before, they had heard a talk about Jesus calming the storm on the sea when he just spoke to the sea, uh, spoke to the storm and said, peace, be still. And so I said, hey guys, this might be weird, but uh, is it right if we just kind of gather up, huddle up for a second and just pray that God would stop this wind so we can repel? And they were like, all right, whatever. So we huddled up, and I just said a short prayer, asking that God would stop the wind, and within a minute, it was gone. And we finished repelling. And when we got to the bottom all together, uh, the guys drew the connection on their own from the night before, from the talk, and just marveled at how God had done what he said he could do, right? So I'm just trying to just brick by brick build this bridge, but then God shows up and decides, I'm going to do something supernatural to to make this process happen, right? And by the end of the week, most of those guys there had professed faith in Christ. It would say that they had a personal relationship with Jesus for the first time. And who knows what role God had in that to show himself as real to them, right? Just one more story that's not about me. Alex, our director of student ministries, um, before we hired him this summer, he was already scheduled to preach uh, a sermon back at the Village Church of Barrington, his old church. So last week he went and did that. Uh, before he gets up to preach, one of his old pastors there says, hey, I've got an unbelieving relative who's here. If you just pray for him before you get up and preach, uh, just, just to yourself. So Alex prays for him. And then a few minutes later, before Alex gets up to preach, uh, this unbelieving relative walks up to him. And it's actually somebody Alex knows. It's one of his coworkers from his former job. And they're, what are you doing here? What are you doing here? I'm about to preach the sermon. So they talk and connect. And then at the end of the sermon... This former co-worker of Alex's comes up to him, uh, a little red in the face, a little teary-eyed. said, that was a powerful message. I've never heard anything like that before. Let's get together. So now they're getting together the next uh, chance that they're able. Who knows what God will do out of that, right? But here's Alex just trying to faithfully, brick by brick, build bridges. 
And then God just decided he's going to just blow it open and uh, do a supernatural work that's outside of any of our control. Um, bottom line, if you've been trying to build a bridge for some time to somebody that you care deeply about, slow going, keep praying. Because we have a God who can do it. He can do it supernaturally. Uh, he can do it all at once if he wants to. We're not dealing with just flesh and blood in our efforts to build bridges to people who don't know Jesus. We have access to the same power that raised Jesus from the dead in our bridge building. So, our bridge building is not limited to natural means. We'll move on to the third point in just a second, but if you'll just bear with me with one more just kind of side note from verses 3 to 6 before we move on. Verses 3 to 6 remind me that my day doesn't rise and fall with what people think of me, right? You saw it there in verse six, uh, verses 3 to 6. First, the people are falsely accusing Paul. Then a minute later, they've changed their mind and they think he's a god, right? Isn't that the way the world works? Isn't that the way the world views us, right? Uh, but we know the truth, according to the Bible, for those of us who are Christians, the truth about ourselves is actually worse than our worst critic has ever dared to accuse us of, right? That's what the Bible says about our true condition. But at the same time, our reality of how loved we are by the king of the universe, that we are sons and daughters of the king, gives us a position loftier than anyone has ever flattered us, right? So what that means for us as Christians is that we don't get shaken by criticism, when people are saying he must be a murderer. We don't get puffed up by flattery when people are saying he must be a god. We know who we are. Our identity is in Christ, not in what people say about us. And so we can reach out and build these bridges boldly, confidently, not being shaken by whether this will make people have ill will toward us or speak evil of us as a result. That brings us to our final point. It's in verses 7 through 10, and it's just this. We ought to be eager to minister to whatever needs we can meet. <clears throat> we ought to be eager to minister to whatever needs we can meet. This is the flip side of the first point, right? So in the first point, we were saying, hey, it often doesn't start with, how can I help you? It often starts with, can you please help me? Now we're saying, but if people have needs, don't neglect to meet their needs, right? Look for ways that we can meet the needs of the people around us doesn't mean don't offer help. Let's look at that as we read verses 7 through 10. Now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery, and Paul visited him and prayed, and putting his hands on him, healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. They also honored us greatly, and we were about to sail. They put on board whatever we needed. <clears throat> In verse 7 there, Paul and company are on the receiving end of the hospitality, just like they were back in verses 1 and 2 at the beginning of the passage, right? Publius is going out of his way to be hospitable. He's doing it in a friendly manner. They're accepting his help. But then in verse 8 is when that shift happens. They go from receiving all the help to being the ones who offer the help, right? Uh, Publius's dad has something that we now know since the 18th century we call Maltese fever. It's a bacteria that comes from the goat's milk on the island of Malta. 
Uh, Luke is a doctor. He knows the symptoms, fever and dysentery. So he tells us about those. And Paul knows the God who can do something about Maltese fever and every other illness. And so Paul heals Publius's father in the name of Jesus. And of course, the rest of the sick people on the island come and Paul heals them as well. But we might ask, if we've been reading along in Acts, why does Luke tell us here about the physical healings that take place, but doesn't take the time to tell us about what happened to these people's eternal souls? Like, did they come to know Jesus or not? Did Paul preach the gospel? If so, what did he say? Uh, you know, what, what happened with all that? Isn't that more important than the physical healing? Why does Luke tell us about one and not the other? Now, on one hand, the impetus behind that is right. Because if we are helping people with their earthly needs, but never taking time to address their eternal needs, then all we're doing is decorating caskets, right? Giving people a more comfortable ride to hell. That's not what we want to do. But on the other hand, we've got to think about what is Luke doing here in this passage? He knows that at this point, when we've been reading along in Acts, we know Paul's M.O. as he goes to a new place. We know the sorts of things Paul must have said as he preached the gospel. We know how people respond when Paul preaches the gospel. Some of them believe, some of them don't, right? Luke knows he's given us that already. What he hasn't given us yet, to the same extent, is uh, that there's value, some value, limited value, but some value, real value, in building bridges and meeting needs of people regardless of whether they come to faith in Jesus or not. Now hear me out. Luke can't be saying this is a substitute for evangelism, right? That it's just as good to heal people's physical diseases as it is to give them the cure to their spiritual illness, right? That wouldn't be consistent with any of the rest of the book of Acts. It wouldn't be consistent with Paul's attitude and his letters. Um, what I think Luke is saying is that while we're doing everything that we've talked about in this passage, being open about our own needs as we try to build bridges, praying that God will expedite the process as we build bridges. We ought to also be aware of the felt needs that the people we love have and try to meet those wherever we can. If out of nothing else, out of just neighbor love, love for our neighbors. On the island of Malta, the felt need, the physical need, was sickness. They needed physical healing, and so Paul offered just that. The question for us is, do we know our unbelieving friends, relatives, neighbors well enough to know what their felt needs are? What they're going to bed at night and waking up in the morning feeling most desperate about? Here on the North Shore, it's kind of hard sometimes to discern the needs of those around us. Uh, nobody wants to show their needs. And for some people, it's not really that they're hiding their needs. They're just not aware of their needs, actually. Um, but when we spend enough time with people, we can get to know what the needs are. In over five years of living here on the North Shore, here, let me just give you three needs that I see pop up regularly here on the North Shore as prevalent needs that we Christians, I think, have something to offer on. You ready? First one is this. Parenting teenagers, right? No matter how much money or power you have, that will never help you at all getting your teenage kids to do what you want them to do, right? So there are a lot of parents of teenagers here on the North Shore who are feeling really desperate and lacking answers to know what to do with their teenage kids, right? 
If you've been a parent of a teenager or you are a parent of a teenager, you have something to offer to your friends and neighbors here on the North Shore. What else? Let's flip a generation and go to the teenagers themselves, right? Anxiety would be a second need that's prevalent here on the North Shore. Even the kid in your grade who looks like they have no needs, they've got it all together. It's very likely that under the surface they have this massive anxiety that they're feeling every day. Pressure from parents who want them to get into every Ivy League school and be captain of all the sports teams and president of all the clubs, right? Um, Pressure that comes from social media and how many likes are they getting. Um, This anxiety can be crushing and overwhelming, even to those who seem like they have it most together. If you know Jesus and you've got friends who are in that situation, you've got something to offer them, something to offer them in their anxiety. One last one. Uh, a need that people feel around here, uh, to support causes, a need to support causes, right? So a lot of our friends and neighbors who live in this area, it's really important to them that they, are cons- they consider themselves moral people, right? That they uh, stand for causes that are doing good for the world. Um, there are a lot of Sophias who live around us, so to speak, right? So they attend benefits, and rallies for causes that they believe in. And actually, many, not all, but many of the causes that they attend benefits and rallies for and spend their lives volunteering hours and hours for are causes that we as Christians can support as well. We might even take it a step further. Many of those causes that they believe so strongly in are causes that we as Christians actually have more reason than they do to believe strongly in. Things like social justice and human dignity, and uh, caring for the environment, right? We have a basis in our scriptures for caring about those things even more deeply than they do. Um, Why would we not just partner with them in that? Why not go to their benefit with them? Why not attend uh, their rally with them? Why not support the causes that they're supporting to the extent that we can, to the extent that they're consistent with what we believe, and in doing so, build a bridge and help meet a need that they feel? You could probably think of more needs of your friends and neighbors here on the North Shore. You probably will think of more needs as you spend time thinking about it, but that's the thing. It requires that we have our eyes open to what's going on around us. Walking around with our eyes open, that's something that we do when we go on mission trips to foreign lands, right? We're so, what are the needs here? We're just soaking it all up, trying to learn about it, right, from the people who know. And we're ministering to those needs so intentionally and praying for those needs as we share the gospel with people, right? But nobody does mission trips to our suburbs here on the North Shore. So we have no framework for having that mindset here where we live, right? Um, But did you notice that this passage we just read is after Paul's last missionary journey? That finished a few chapters ago. He's not on a missionary journey right now. He's, on a, he's a prisoner on a ship, right? But still, he's acting just like he would on every other missionary journey. Uh, he's surely sharing the gospel with people. He's ministering to needs. He's acting the same. Here's what we do, though. We fly halfway across the world to be so concerned about these people's needs, and then we come back home, and we show just about zero concern for the needs of the person sitting next to us on the train, right? The moment you and I surrendered to Jesus, gave our lives to him, he sent us 
on a mission trip. It's going to last the rest of our lives. If you've taken anything from the book of Acts over this last year and a half, hopefully it's been that, since chapter 1, verse 8, that we have been sent to be his witnesses. The reason he didn't beam us up the moment we got saved is because he's left us here to share that good news with others so that they could experience what we've experienced. You heard during the announcements about the NCD team. They're doing research to try to get to know our area, get to know what the needs are. Uh, If you haven't taken their survey, please do, because we really want to know. We want to get a good feel. And if you have ideas or observations that go beyond the survey, please reach out to a member of the NCD team and let them know that as well. Or one of us pastors, we look forward to that NCD team's uh, findings as we chart a course forward as a church trying to do a better job ministering to uh, the people in these neighborhoods where we live. All right, so today we've gotten some guidance on doing this looking for opportunities to build bridges to the Sophias of the world in particular, to uh, morally good, unbelieving people whom we love. Those of you who don't yet know Jesus, thank you for hanging with us this morning. Uh, Even as we have talked all this talk about bridge building and implied that the whole point of the bridge being built is so that we can transport some good news across that bridge to people who don't yet know that good news in hopes that they would be captured by it like we've been captured by it. And if you'll just let me be so bold before we leave, I want to make sure that everybody here has heard what that good news is. The good news that we're trying to transport across those bridges that we're building. The good news is so good because the bad news is actually so bad. It's all about a snake, actually, uh, if you look at it one way. That snake that we saw that latched onto Paul's hand in our passage, it was representative of something bigger than just that. A storyline that actually tracks through from the third chapter of the Bible onward, when a snake showed up and tempted Adam and Eve and set everything wrong. Ever since then, that snake has been working night and day to steal and kill and destroy, uh, to blind all of us to his existence, The Bible teaches that the whole world is under his power and has been. That's the default condition of any of us. We're born under the power of this evil serpent called Satan. And he's been working tirelessly to destroy us. And at the climax of the whole Bible, that moment when Jesus was hanging on that cross, that Roman cross, and breathing his last, the Bible teaches that that snake was sinking his fangs into our Lord, the God-man, Jesus Christ. And as Jesus breathed his last and was buried in that tomb, the serpent thought he had won. He thought that that was the end of the story. He thought that he had defeated the king. But then, on the third day, Jesus broke the fangs of the serpent. He spit in death's face. He climbed out of his grave, neutralized the serpent's venom, and won the victory over the last enemy, death itself. And actually the Bible teaches that that wasn't just so that we would uh, look at him and say, he's so great and awesome, although that's part of it. Right? But he actually died and rose again to do something for us, too. The Bible actually teaches that those of us who are in him, united to him, 
We were buried with him when he was buried, spiritually speaking. And we rose to new life with him as he rose to new life, spiritually speaking. And actually, as he ascended into heaven where he's now seated at the right hand of the Father, we were raised up into the heavens with him and are currently seated with him at the right hand of the Father, spiritually speaking. That's our reality now for those of us who are in Christ. And what does that mean for us now in our human existence? It means that we still face that serpent. He's still nipping at our heels. He's uh, still trying to sidetrack us, to get us off track. But if we're in Christ, the serpent that we face is now toothless. He's now venomless. He has lost his great power, the power of death over us. He has it no more because he's been defeated. <clears throat> That's what Jesus did when he died in our place and arose again so that we could be raised to new life with him. And that's the good news that we so badly want to build bridges about so we can get that news across the bridge to people who haven't heard it yet. We want everyone to know that news so that they don't have to keep living under the power of the devil, under the serpent's spell. It's the most urgent, most important news that we have as Christians. So let's pray now that God would empower us to build those bridges to deliver that good news as it ought to be delivered. <clears throat> Our Lord, that is what we pray. Your news is so great. We want everybody to know it. We have friends and neighbors and loved ones who are blind to the fact that they're under the spell of an evil one, that they've been poisoned, that they've been bitten, that they are blinded to reality outside of themselves. We know that only your word has the power to break those chains, to remove the scales from our eyes, to help us see rightly. And so we want that word, that good news, to go to everyone that we love and care about so that they can experience what we've experienced in them, so we can spend eternity with them in your presence. Lord, help us as a community of believers to become better at building bridges to those who don't know you, so that we may, in love, communicate your good news to them. In Jesus' name, amen.